Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Um, Justin read from, uh, from Titus uh, chapter 3. Um, I know that uh, Justin and uh, Paul have been working through Titus on Wednesday nights, and I can't tell you what a blessing that that's been. Uh, it's, uh, Justin and Paul are great teachers and, uh, and just continue to grow in their teaching too as they've taught on Wednesday nights. The discussions for the Wednesday nights that I've been a part of have been interesting and thought-provoking, and, um, and it's been a real blessing in my life uh, just to uh, be in fellowship uh, in the Word and the Bible studies that Paul and Justin are leading out on. And there's so much good gospel truth in Titus, and Justin read so much of it this morning, salvation by faith and not of works, and and uh, I just want to thank him uh, for that. We're going to be circling around uh, the gospel again this morning in Philippians chapter 1. Uh, I'd like to start by uh, reading verses 12 through 18, and then we'll unpack verses 12 through 18 verse by verse, and uh, then try to transition into uh, preparedness for the Lord's Supper. So let's read beginning in verse 12. Uh, Paul writes, But I want you to know, brethren that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ even from envy and strife, some also from goodwill, the former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Um. I'll tell you, it's tough for me to work through that without becoming slightly emotional, uh, only because um, I've spent uh, the last 48 hours really thinking about it and really thinking about what's being said. Um, I was not emotional the first time I read it. I was not emotional about it the first day that I was working through it. But now, on the heels of working through it for two days, I have to say it's quite an emotional thing to read. Um, Paul is uh, imprisoned. Uh, no matter what that imprisonment looked like, he was not free. Um, he was in chains, probably chained around an ankle or something like that to a person of the palace guard. That's what the New King James says here, the palace guard. But the palace guard doesn't necessarily mean a soldier who was a guard in the palace. Um, it became more of a general term for a soldier who was... Uh, specific to Caesar in Rome. In other words, this was one of Caesar's men. Paul had made an appeal to Caesar. He had been arrested on, on his missionary journeys, and uh, he had presented his case for why being a Christian and believing the gospel was not an unreasonable thing. Um, he had been uh, rejected in his defense on multiple occasions, and finally, in this very big presentation, he makes this appeal to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, he was allowed to do this. I, I want Caesar to hear my case. And so now he's in Rome, and he's 
he's got chains on him. And if you just think through that, I mean, I think most of you here are probably respectable people as far as society is concerned. I think most of you are probably, you know, people that um, society is not looking at with great suspicion, you know. Um, And if you could just imagine the humiliation of being walked about the city with a chain around your ankle to a soldier day after day after day, there's something degrading about that like an animal, like a, a dog on a leash, like, like someone violent who might erupt at any moment and do something, uh, like, like someone whom your children should shy away from. If they're going down one side of the street, you should go down the other. There's something degrading about that. One of the most humiliating things about our nation's history is when people would be put in chains and come to find out for no reason at all other than uh, their nationality or the color of their skin. There's, there's something, hu- beyond the fact that you are a captive, there's something humiliating. There's something personally shaming about being an individual whom society has ruled has to be chained to someone more powerful. Chained to someone who is, you know, responsible for, for what you might do at any time. And this is what Paul's going through right now. And Paul wasn't a violent man. He was not someone who you had to be afraid of your children being around. He was not someone who, you know, you should go to the other side of the street when you saw him coming on. But because of his circumstance, that's what life, presumably, I think it's fair to presume, is like for Paul chained to a soldier right now in a great city like Rome. And... While he is chained, this passage tells us that he is um, rejoicing even at the gospel at work. And that's what's emotional for me because this would be a, a really, it's really unfathomable to think that this would be a time of rejoicing, period, in someone's life. And that's what I want to dwell on today. That's why my the prayer, kind of the pastoral prayer at the start of the sermon was about stirring up inside of us a passion and a zeal for the gospel. This is who Paul was. Let's look beginning at verse 12. Just walk through these verses with me. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Um, You see in the New King James, anyway, that wording, have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The King James Version says... The things that have happened to me have fallen out, rather. The ESV, the things that have happened to me has really served for the furtherance of the gospel. The the New American Standard, circumstances have turned out. And the reason why I'm going through these is the language here is clearly meant to indicate that something very contrary as to what one might expect has actually happened. You know, like it's almost as if, you know, you're telling someone about your day and you're like, man, the day started off rough. We, you know, I had to go in and I had to, I met with my boss and there were all kinds of problems in the, in the shop or in the warehouse or, and, 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 and they're like, oh, well, I'm really sorry to hear that. And then you say, well, actually it turned out pretty good. That's kind of the language here. Like you would expect it to have gone downhill from there, but actually things were better. Things got better. And that's what Paul is saying here. I mean, I want you to know, brothers in Philippi who are supporting me, that even though I am 
chained to a soldier and not free to walk around and share the gospel, not free to go from place to place and strengthen the churches, even though I am in this humiliating position, actually, this has turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. It's important to Paul that the Philippians who are, again, presumably sad that Paul is in chains, that they are not despondent at this, that they see something mysterious happening, that they see the hand of God working in the life of this man, Paul, that they don't see the victory of Satan in Paul's life, that they don't see the powers of evil overcoming the powers of good. It's important that they don't see the man of God you know, confined in an unuseful and unhelpful way. It's important to Paul that they see the situation for what it actually is. Yes, Satan has uh, made his enmity with Paul evident in the imprisonment of his life and chains around his waist. But actually, God is working in Paul. Actually, God is working in the circumstance. Actually, God is who we proclaim Him to be. He is sovereign and in control of my circumstances. So that even as they chain me up, He is working this for the furtherance of this message of salvation that I've been commissioned to take here. There's something in God's character here then that Paul is appealing to them to remember. And it's something we should remember too. And it's a story that, that hits us all throughout the books of the Bible and the redemption story. It's the story of Joseph trying to reassure his brothers when his brothers had lived peacefully. His brothers had sold him into slavery. Now, you don't get more of a betrayal than that. His own brothers had sold him into slavery, had left him for dead, had lied about his, his circumstances to his father, and then had this amazing experience where they re-encounter him now in charge in Egypt and find out that he's actually going to provide for them in the middle of a famine. This is the story of Joseph and his brothers. And then after 17 years of living reconciled to Joseph in Egypt, they spent seven, more than a decade and a half living with this person whom they'd betrayed and who'd forgiven them and provided for them, 17 years living peacefully with him. When their father dies, they're terrified that Joseph is going to take vengeance. That's how guilty their conscience was over what they'd done. <laughs> and Joseph can't help but start crying when they come to him pleading for him not to take vengeance because he thought that this, he thought this was all reconciled. Come to find out, 17 years they had just been waiting for the other shoe to drop. And you remember the great theological statement, the great thing about God that Joseph tells his brothers after 17 years when they're afraid dad's dead and now he's going to take vengeance on us for what we did. He tells them, now here it is, do not be afraid for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. There's no doubt about that. You... You throw somebody in a pit and sell them into slavery, you can't say you meant it for good, okay? They meant evil against Joseph. But God meant it 
for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, Paul could have said that very same thing to his jailers. He could have said that same thing to the palace guard. You meant this as evil against me. But God meant this for good to bring about the salvation of a great many people. Um, a few weeks ago, um, I reminded you of the, the great passage from Ephesians that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And we even took probably 15 minutes of a Sunday morning sermon to talk about who we wrestle against. Satan. Spiritual forces who are against God and against his message of salvation. Um, and Paul is not wrestling with Caesar here. He's not wrestling with jailers. He's not wrestling with judges. He's not even wrestling with, with Jews who want to see him you know, put to death. Paul is, is wrestling here with Satan, but he is confident, and he wants the Philippians to know that he is confident that God is still working and God cannot be defeated in his purposes in Paul's life at the hands of any human being. There is no Caesar who can thwart the work of God. There is no, there is no chain that can stop or confine the work of God. And he, he's very passionate that they know this. Now look at verse 13. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Now, um, it wasn't every day in Rome that you would see someone chained to one of Caesar's men. It wasn't every day. Rome... Capital of the world, you could argue at this point. Certainly the capital of the Roman Empire, which was the empire of the world. Lots of people. Lots of busy streets. Lots of, of strangers. Lots of people living in community with each other who have no clue who each other are. Just lot, a very busy place. And it wasn't every day that you would look up on your walk down one of these busy streets and see somebody chained to a a soldier of Caesar, of Caesar being marched down the road. That wasn't an everyday occurrence. When you saw something like that, it would catch your eye. It would catch your attention. Um, like when, you, when, when all of traffic slows down to crane their neck at, at you know, who the police have pulled over. You know, this is like the escalated version of that. When you saw that, you'd be like, what's going on over there? And you might stop and you might say, does anybody know? What's going on with that guy? He doesn't look like a violent guy. I mean, he's just this old, old guy chained to a guard at this point. What did he do? It would catch, it would draw a lot of attention. On top of that, Paul was kind of a famous guy. See, there had been a church now in Rome for a while. He'd written the letter to the Romans already. He was kind of a well-known guy. The church had grown it had grown large enough in Rome that the emperor at the time, uh, Nero, had begun to have enmity against the church. In other words, they, it wasn't just a couple of people meeting in some houses. The church, even in a place like Rome, had grown enough that it rose to Caesar's attention, and within a matter of years, it would rise to Caesar's animosity. 
And there's, you know, very famous historical accounts of Nero and his persecution against the church. Now, it's not there yet, but it's rising to that point right now. And among the church and this very large contingent of people, Paul was a well-known man, very well-known man. He was an apostle to the Gentiles, and there are a lot of Gentiles in Rome. He was well-known. And so he was drawing attention being marched around so that it became evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Now, I take that to mean at some point in time, these soldiers whose job was just to wake up every day and, oh, it's my turn to have the prisoner today, or it's my turn to do this today, or it's my duty to do the prisoner. What have we got today? Okay, I've got the prisoner today. Eventually, they start to look at this guy and they start to say, what's this guy's story here? <laughs> I mean... Having been chained to lots of prisoners before, I'm used to the look of a prisoner. And this isn't it. So what's going on here? What's, Paul, what's your story? Why are you here? What's going on? And you can almost hear Paul talking about this, right? Well, I'm, I'm here because I believe in the resurrected Jesus Christ. Who? I, I believe that the Messiah that was killed at the Passover in Jerusalem, rose from the grave. And in fact, there's lots of evidence of this. I can show you uh, the, the lives of many people who believe this same thing. Actually, this is what it means to be a Christian. Yeah, I've heard of Christians. What do they believe again? They believe that somebody rose from the dead? Yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. Well, how did he do that? Well, I can tell you how. Jesus was not a sinner. And you can hear this conversation playing out. You can hear the curiosity leading to the gospel and the, 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 the sharing of the gospel. And when he says that that's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest, I take it to mean that there are lots of people in Rome who have become aware over the previous months, potentially even longer at this point in time, that there was a guy who was actually here, chained up in Rome, who was one of the leaders of these Christians that everybody was running about, and he was chained up because of that. And you can almost see them interacting. Well, why? I mean, I, what, I don't understand. What, what's, what is it about the Christian faith that this guy's chained? I mean, we got all kinds of gods and places here. What's going on there? And you can almost hear the interactions of people trying to figure out what this message was. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Verse 14. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, on the surface, you would expect the opposite of that. I mean, what is happening is Caesar is making it clear, the Romans are making it clear that if you are someone who preaches the gospel like Paul, you might find yourself a criminal chained to a guard. Now, on the surface, you would think that would invite more fear into sharing the gospel, right? I mean, that would make sense. However, what's the biggest fear that anyone has when they share the gospel? It's that 
the person that I'm talking to isn't going to want to hear it, or they're going to say something that I can't speak to. They're going to ask some question that I'm not ready for. It's breaking the ice. It's sitting down. It's finding the one-on-one time to talk to someone about something deeply spiritual. And you're saying, well, they're not going to care about sin. They're not going to care about the Bible. They're not going to care about this. That's the most fearful part about sharing the gospel is getting started. And Paul's situation was breaking the ice for them. <laughs> hey, you're a Christian, aren't you? Yeah. What's the deal with this guy, Paul? What's going on? He, you guys believe in, in, some, in a dead person? What's the deal here? Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, his name's Jesus. Well, he's not just some dead person. Actually, this, I've got the Old Testament here. The Jews, you know, their Old Testament talk about him. I can show you where it talks about this guy. Yeah, but he's dead. Yeah, but the, the Jews killed him. The Old Testament said that they would, and he rose from the grave. Well, how do you know that? Well, more than 500 people have seen him one time. Really. Paul's saying, look, what, what Satan has orchestrated here to strike fear into the hearts of God's people has actually had the opposite effect. People are more bold to speak. Um, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. So we have two different categories of people talking about these things. Rome is a buzz. We have two different categories of buzzing going on here. Some are talking about the gospel, sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel out of envy and strife. Now, if you're not familiar with envy and strife, these are not high virtues in the Bible, okay? Uh, Envy is wanting what someone else has. Strife is some personal conflict you have with someone else. The someone in question here would be Paul. So there are some who are preaching the gospel envious, jealous of Paul. Like I said, Paul was a famous guy, very well known, a lot of attention. And they have a personal problem with Paul and the attention that he gets. And so now that Paul is on the scene, they are preaching the gospel and, and they're, they're doing it for their own fame and for their own notoriety. Um, others are preaching out of goodwill, which is how we're supposed to preach the gospel, okay, if we're talking about motivations. The first group, the former, preach Christ from selfish ambition. They want to make a name for themselves. They're jealous of Paul's name. They're jealous of Paul's position. They want to make a name for themselves. Not sincerely, it says. (laughs) In other words, they're not preaching Christ out of a sincere hope that people will be saved. They're preaching Christ hoping to attract followers. Ambition. Supposing to add affliction to my chains. Now, I think this affliction is not... Um, what is commonly taught, but I'm willing to be wrong. It's commonly taught. They're preaching Jesus so that they'll stir, stir up even more trouble for Paul and Paul's people will be abusive towards, the, the jailers will be abusive towards him. I don't think that's what it means because these guys are preaching Jesus too. I don't think they're trying to stir up necessarily physical violence, although many people do and maybe that's what it means. I think what it means is 
meaning to add affliction. In other words, it's a particular, it would be a particular torment to Paul for him to lose his popularity and his following while he's in chains. In other words, they're ambitious, they want the following, they want the notoriety for themselves, so they're preaching to try to win people to themselves and to their own teaching and their own, their own name, uh, hoping to steal those people away from being followers or listeners of Paul. Now, of course, we know how Paul feels about this from the Bible, you know? The whole First Corinthians conflict is back in scene. You know, <laughs> who is Apollos? Who is Paul? You know, it says, doesn't matter. I'm not looking to make followers of Paul. But there were people with selfish ambitions trying to do that thing. And I think that's what it means here. And, and hoping to steal support from Paul while he's in prison. Verse 17, the other group, the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. In other words, there's another group that is sharing the gospel, trying to present the gospel as something reasonable because they know ultimately Paul is going to stand before Caesar and he's going to have to present the gospel as something reasonable. They know he is appointed for the defense of the gospel. And so they are sharing the gospel to support Paul out of goodwill to see people saved, knowing that this whole encounter with Caesar is going to climax in Paul standing before the ruler of the world, giving a defense for why it should be reasonable to believe this and not criminal to believe this. Verse 18 is the part that gets me. This is where I talk about getting choked up. Here it is. Verse 18. What then? Which I think is the equivalent of, who cares? <laughs> you ever say that? Why should I care? Who cares? Yeah, there are people who are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ for wrong reasons. The gospel that they're preaching isn't wrong, but they're preaching it for wrong reasons. Okay, Now, if the gospel that they were preaching were wrong, then they would fall into the false teaching categories that are prevalent throughout Paul's other New Testament letters. But that wasn't the issue. What do I care if their motives for preaching might be insincere. Am I that person's judge? No. <laughs> Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Paul was just happy that the true message of salvation was being preached. He wasn't going to be bitter about the evangelistic efforts of other people no matter what their motivation was. Do you know why? Because Paul loved the gospel. Paul loved this story. He loved the message. And if the gospel was proclaimed because he was in chains, that was okay with him. And if the gospel was proclaimed because there were jealous first century tele-evangelists out there, that's okay with him. Paul loved the gospel. He loved the story that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He loved that story. He had experienced the redemption of that story. Paul had lived a life that was against Jesus. 
And despite the life that he lived that was blatantly against Jesus, um, God had saved him. God had redeemed him. Um, This was a story he loved. Um, The challenge here um, that I kind of concluded in preparing this was, do I love the gospel like Paul loved the gospel? Not do I enjoy being a Christian, Or am I glad that I'm not going to go to hell when I die? Do I love the gospel? And I I would challenge you with the same question. Do you love the gospel? And the gospel, do you love this story? Do you love the story of what God has done to save people who are destined for eternal hell? Do you love to tell the story? We... I, I was talking to somebody just yesterday and it was the third time in the last three months that this person has told me the same story. <laughs> it's happened three times, so much so that after the first two sentences of telling me the story for the third time yesterday, he stopped and said, and I probably told you this before. And I said, <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. you know." And then he continued and he told me the rest of the story. Why? Because he loved that story. That's why. <laughs> he loved the story. It was really neat. He thought it was really cool. And he wanted to share it with me. Three times. I don't know how many times he told that story to everybody else, but he was excited about it. He loved the story. He was not bothered talking about it. He, he wasn't worried someone was going to ask him some weird question about it that he wasn't going to answer. You know, you know it, it was the dumbest story. That's the ridiculous part. I mean, the, it was about some TV show, and he wasn't worried that I would say, yeah, what channel in time is that on? And he'd say, oh, man, I don't know. He wasn't worried that I would ask some question he wasn't prepared to answer. He didn't even think about that. He just, he, he just loved the story. He, he wasn't even worried whether or not I, you know... <laughs> Liked it as much as him. (laughs) But that's how it is when you have a story that's meaningful to you and that you love, you talk about it. You talk about the things that you love. You share the things that you love. You're not afraid to share the things that you love. The moment you get any familiarity with people whatsoever and you start to become friends, that part of you starts to come out. Paul loved the gospel. And I'm challenged, do I love the gospel like that? And I think you should be challenged, do you love the gospel like that? Um, There was a, I don't know why this stuck with me, and maybe it's a poor fit, but I'm going to share two two stories with you anyway. There was an NFL Hall of Fame inductee ceremony this weekend. They put some people in the Hall of Fame. I didn't know the people they were putting in the Hall of Fame this year. I think I knew one of them, but I didn't know the others. So I was just reading a little article that summarized it. But one guy who was going into the Hall of Fame used his time to stand up at the podium to thank his college coach. And I knew his college coach. That's why it caught my attention. It's Bobby Bowden, the Florida State football coach for years and years and years, uh, decades and decades, very successful. And Bobby Bowden's dead. He, he died within the last year. And he, uh, this player, Leroy Butler, played for Bobby Bowden in college, and he wanted to stand up and speak to, because he, wa- he wanted to have Bobby Bowden give his in Hall of Fame inductions, you know, introduction for him, but he passed away in the last year, so he couldn't do it. So he stood up and he wanted to speak to 
what Bobby Bowden, what this football coach meant to him. And it was a cool story because Leroy Butler, it turned out, was a really highly recruited guy out of high school, but he was an academic risk which meant he wasn't going to be able to play his first year of college. And in his senior year, when he became an, an academic risk, uh, most of the colleges that were recruited, big colleges, Notre Dame was one of them, they stopped recruiting him, but not Bobby Bowden. Bobby Bowden still, still wanted Leroy Butler, wanted to give him a scholarship, even though he wasn't going to play, wanted him to come to Florida State. And so he decided, I'm going to go visit Leroy Butler. Leroy Butler grew up in the projects of Jacksonville. Um, not a safe area. And... Um, when Bobby Bowden called Leroy to schedule the visit to Leroy, because his next step in recruiting is go talk to mom, and he wanted to go talk to mom with, uh, <laughs> Leroy told him, he said, Coach, when you come to see me, you're going to drive by this 7-Eleven. There's going to be a bunch of guys out front. Don't stop. That's, that's what, he told, what he told Bobby Bowden. So Bobby Bowden drove so, by the 7-Eleven, saw the guys, didn't stop, but was still coming to Leroy Butler's house, recruited him. And he went on to play there and have a very successful career. Uh, Leroy couldn't play his freshman year, but uh, he still wanted to be a part of the team. So he would, he would, on his own time, he couldn't ride the team bus. That's part of the NCAA rules. So he would drive himself to the airport to say goodbye to the team. And when they'd fly back in after a game, he'd, he'd drive himself to the airport to welcome the team. I mean, he's not, he's not playing with the team, but the, he's just trying to get his grades right so that he can practice and play with the team. But he, and he made an impression on Bobby Bowden and... Um, Bobby Bowden would just glowingly talk about Leroy Butler for you know the rest of his life. And what here's the quote that caught my attention while I'm telling you the story. Um, Terry Bowden, about one of Bobby Bowden's sons, Terry Bowden had this to say. He said about Leroy and his dad, I know I heard dad talk to Leroy like a son because I'm a son of my dad. <laughs> he said, you know, I watched my dad coach a lot of people, but... I know that my dad loved Leroy like a son because I'm a son. <laughs> and I know what it's like for my dad to love one of his sons. And that's how he talked about Leroy. He said, and I know thousands of players, but Leroy was the one he would talk about like a son. He was so proud of Leroy. I thought that was pretty cool. Jesus knows what it is to be the Son of God. And John 1.11 says, He came to His own, and His own didn't receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name. Jesus is the Son who gives us the right to be sons and daughters of His Father, of God. And He knows what that's like. You and I don't know what that's like until we experience it. But Jesus does, and it's such a privilege to be a child of God, that Jesus Christ would go to the cross to give you that opportunity. I thought that was cool. I'll tell you one other story. Um, I was reading this week from uh, uh, Desiring God's website, which is John Piper's ministry, and uh, he wrote on this verse, which is just one verse, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. And the question is, how will we escape the judgment of God if we neglect so great a salvation? And then he told a story, and I just want to read this. It's not long. I just want to read the story that he told, and you can think about it. Then we'll transition to the Lord's Supper. This is John Piper saying, uh, My dad and I were coin collectors when I was growing up, and there was a sequence of years 
I can't remember the exact age, when we were coin collectors. I wonder how many have ever been coin collectors. I haven't looked at the books for a long time, but there used to be these full open blue books with little holes and dates, the place of minting, and you would push the coin in. And eventually you'd get a full book, and that was a big deal. It's probably worth hundreds of dollars. So my dad is a traveling evangelist. He'd go away and he'd talk to coin collectors. He'd save all his coins and he'd bring them home, and then he and I would sit down together and look at them. And we'd look them up in the book, and we'd see, is this good, is this excellent, or is this fair? And we'd push them into the book, and we would try to finish these books. And then something happened. I can't tell you what happened. We just started to not do it. And there were a few spurts in the years after that of interest. We would go down in the bottom of the shelf where there was a little door, and we'd push the door, and there they were. And we'd pull one out, and we'd do it for a little bit, and then put it back. And longer months would pass. Today, I don't have a clue where those books are. And there were thousands of dollars. That's the way many people experience the Christian faith. There's this spurt. There's this engagement. There's this flowering of apparent zeal and interest. And then weeks pass and no prayer, no meditation on the Word. It's easy to skip worship. The lake home really needs some attention and there's good fellowship there and the glory of God is proclaimed in the sunshine and little by little you wake up one day and it's over. It's not only neglected, it's forgotten and you're cold and there may be no return according to Hebrews 12, maybe. Um, that was the story and I, I want to share that with you because we're getting ready to observe the Lord's Supper and every Sunday morning in Philippians right now we're talking about the gospel. And if you're a Christian, I would presume that at one point in your lives, you were passionate about the gospel. If you know about the Bible, I would presume that at one point in your lives, you were passionate about knowing about the Bible, about Bible study. I would presume there was a time when the power of prayer was so real to you that you would engage in that regularly, that talking to your heavenly Father was not merely checking off a to-do list and a morning meditation, but that the conversation that you had was not to some invisible being, but was to the Almighty God who'd saved your soul, and you saw His response to you in your day and in your week. And now we turn to the Lord's Supper here, and I know that this is tradition for many of you, but it's not supposed to be tradition. It's supposed to be a sacrament that we're commanded to observe until the Lord Jesus comes. That's, that's more than tradition. Tradition is like, well, we have a picnic on Labor Day. That's, that's tradition. This is a sacrament. This is something holy to God. And I want to tell you that I sympathize with you, and I think John Piper sympathizes too. I think that's the point of the story. It's not as if I don't understand. I feel it too. That it's easy to become cold and distant and to go through your Christian life with intense spurts of caring and long absences of not caring. And the warning from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 is, be careful not to neglect your salvation. And I don't want you to neglect your salvation. 
I want it to be meaningful to you. I don't want you to neglect your husband. I don't want you to neglect your wife. I don't want you to neglect your job. I don't want you to neglect your children. But in comparison to all those other things, it would be eternally damning to neglect your salvation. What else matters? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his soul? So what we do here is serious. and What we do in here is serious. And I want to pray for you now that if it needs it, that your soul will be stirred up by the Holy Spirit of God as we worship. Let's pray. Father, I know what's in my own heart and the, the great disinterest and distraction there is sometimes with things that are holy to you and I'm so sorry I ask you to forgive me once again I don't want to shame you and I don't want to embarrass you but I also don't want to neglect you and you are not some needy God who will get his feelings hurt if I'm not who I should be in my relationship to you you are stronger than that. You, you are not in need of me. But you are a loving father who knows that it is best for me if I am with you and if I am drawn close to you and if I am passionate for your will. Father, draw me close to you again. Draw your people here this morning close to you again. Like a father who grabs a son or a, a daughter by the, the collar of the shirt and pulls them in for an embrace, draw your people near to you spiritually this morning. Not in a manufactured way, not in a, an emotional pretense, not in a show or a demonstration, but in the heart of hearts, in the, in the, in the essence of who we are as people. Stir up inside of us a love and a passion for knowing you and a love and a passion for the story of knowing you, the gospel. Thank you for your great mercy and patience that when we turn away from you, you simply don't just cut the cord and walk away. Thank you for the parable of the prodigal son and for the picture of yourself as the one who waits for the return of the child. Thank you for the poignant imagery of that. Help us to honor you because of your great love and faithfulness to us. Help us to be concerned with your will and your victory. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.